welcome to Salt Talks, a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost thinkers, creators, and entrepreneurs. Uh, today, we are very thrilled to be welcoming Shamath Kalihapatiya to Salt Talks. And just as we do at our global conferences, we try to provide a platform both for big ideas and to provide our audience a window into the minds of leading uh, business executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators. Uh, Chamath, as you may know, is the founder of Social Capital. Uh, he is also a part owner of the Golden State Warriors and now the chairman of Virgin Galactic, which he took public via a special purpose acquisition vehicle, uh, which Anthony and Chamath will likely talk about today. Uh, but I want to turn it over to Anthony Scaramucci, who's going to be doing the interview. Anthony, as most of you know, is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a leading alternative investment firm, as well as the chairman of SALT. Anthony, I'll let you and Chamath take it away. Okay, well, John, I appreciate it. Jamath, I'm going to dig right into it with you. We're going to make this a crisp 45 minutes, if that's okay. And uh, you've got a lot of philosophical thoughts about inequality, your personal journey to where you are now. And I, I was just wondering if you could give us a, a, a good two or three minute explanation of how you've gotten to where you are and where are you exactly on the whole idea of inequality and where we need to go. Um, sure. So <clears throat> I'm a Sri Lankan by birth. Um, I was born, I'm 43 years old. I was born in 76 in uh, Colombo, Sri Lanka. My parents um, emigrated to Canada when I was six. Um, my dad worked in the embassy there. And uh, at the time, there was a civil war between uh, the Sinhalese and the, the Tamils. We were Sinhalese. Um, and uh, it was not safe for my father and our family to go back. So then uh, we stayed in Canada. Uh, this, will under, this will give you a sense of sort of where I'm coming from. But uh, we claimed refugee status because my father's life was uh, threatened. We got refugee status. Um, grew up on social assistance, uh, on welfare in, in Canada. Uh, parents tried hard to work, you know, off and on. My mom was a housekeeper. Um, I went to college in Canada, again, uh, you know, relatively cheaply, uh, did an engineering degree at University of Waterloo. And um, after a year working at an investment bank, after an engineering degree, I, I traded interest rate derivatives at Bank of Montreal. I moved to California. I worked at a series of startups. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, I ended up working at AOL, rose through the ranks of AOL um, in my mid-20s, was running a division there. Then. Um, came back to the West Coast and uh, joined Facebook early on, helped them scale their business, um, was one of the kind of principal executives in its, in its kind of seminal growth phase, led the growth of the business. Um, and then in 2011, I uh, started investing uh, full-time at Social Capital. Um, and in 2017, um, really unwound a lot of the typical LPGP relationships and then um, transformed the business to be more of a technology holding company with this idea that uh, we would use a permanent capital base to buy and hold long duration assets um, and then take them public and eventually take social capital public. Um, so that's sort of my uh, life in a nutshell. Um, my, my political philosophy is, uh, I would say, um, ideologically promiscuous. Um, so there are some very firm beliefs that I have about uh, social safety net because I directly benefited from it. Um, and then there are some very strong beliefs I have about open market, open markets and capitalism because I've been a direct beneficiary of those. And, um, 
you know, it would be a lie to basically say that I've come to these conclusions uh, more from an academic perspective. These are very much lived experiences, Anthony. So um, I think that I'm probably a centrist who believes in extremely free open markets, thoughtful long-term allocation of capital, um, but a strict uh, code of ethics around the social safety infrastructure we provide to our fellow citizens so that the rest of us who want to compete in the open markets can do so um, without the fear of revolution. Are you a, a UBI fan like Andrew Yang or? Uh... It's interesting. I, I would not have claimed myself to be a UBI fan until this pandemic. I think that those are tools that are really important in exigent circumstances. And I would put the pandemic as uh, the most obvious case for where UBI makes sense. It, it, it comes in part from a, you know, a social safety net perspective, but the, the much larger motivation for my belief in UBI is one around how to um, end what I think we are in right now, which is uh, a deflationary super cycle, quite honestly. And um, you know, we are in for decades of Japanese style malaise unless we um, jumpstart the economy. And I think the most obvious way which people refuse to admit is that you know, we're a consumer-driven-led GDP growth country, and we need to get enough money into the hands of people where they aren't psychologically incentivized to save but to spend. Talk about the deflation super cycle for a second, sure. because you think some of that is being induced by the Fed, and uh, and some people actually, there's a lot of people listening in that are in the financial services industry. They think the Fed's money creation is creating inflation. I personally don't. Uh, I do see the deflationary cycle in terms of the excess factory, labor, all that stuff. But, you know, define that super cycle for people and why do you think it is perhaps intractable? I think this is a, um, uh, it's a really, by the way, your framing is actually excellent. It, it's exactly that. We're, we're on the track to something that I think is intractable because um, the accelerant of deflation is the Fed and uh, the printing of money. But the inception of this deflationary cycle is actually tech and tech businesses. So let's just take a step back and look at, you know, the five best tech businesses in the world. Um, and think about the incentives that they create in the consumer's mind and have done, especially in the last decade. You know, if you wanted social connection, you can go to Facebook and get an enormity of that for free. If you want information and access to, um, content that basically crushes any asymmetry that anybody else would have over you, you can get that from Google for free. If you wanted to entertain yourself with video content um, and not pay $130 to your MSO cable provider, you can get that from Netflix or YouTube, essentially close to free. Um, if you want to communicate across channels and not have to pay you know, a telecom provider, um, you can get that from Microsoft and Facebook and Google essentially for free. If you want uh, things that are uh, cheap and available uh, in instantaneous, you know, seconds and minutes, you know, if you wait long enough for Amazon, they'll give you that also essentially for free. So what, what has been happening slowly is that these enormous companies have created tons of value, but by doing it in ways that have ingrained in the consumer, that cheaper, faster, and better is always on the horizon. And so for you to wait, you get rewarded. And so what that it does is an incentive to save money. And so when you look at what happened in the savings rate after the great financial crisis, I think a lot of what happened was if you even assume 
that the quantitative easing had some trickle down effect and that money got into the hands of consumers, they didn't see the need to spend it, Anthony. They were like, I'm just going to save this because you know what? I have exactly what I want and sure. the incremental things I want will just be cheaper tomorrow. And so why spend this money today? And it gave them some amount of psychological safety. So we've been reinforcing that mechanic for a decade coming into this crisis. And then on top of that, you add trillions and trillions of dollars. What happens then is people now look at that money and they say, well, I never needed the money before as much as I, you know, I'm going to need it today versus tomorrow. So I'm just going to save. And so what people think is, well, I need to put this to work in a place where I can actually save and compound. So then you see this asset bubble inflate. So I think that this duality is working together. Technology on the one hand drives the entire world to believe in deflation, to want deflation because you're getting value. And then the monetary supply basically reinforces that that money, which becomes a less and less useful commodity, should go back into the asset markets because it's not something that is a useful instrument today. And it'll become increasingly as, less useful tomorrow. When, so when you put those two factors together, that's what's creating this super cycle. Yeah, so I see all of that, and I think it's a brilliant uh, a set analysis of, of it. But the one fear, if you're a central banker, that you have in deflation is debt repayment and the economic term that emerged in the 1930s called debt destruction. So let me just give you the math. I'm a person that has a $50,000 income or $60,000 income. I've got $200,000 of debt. In that deflationary super cycle, wages are also going down, Shamath. And yes. so let's give you this example. I'm, I'm going from 60 to $30,000. Look at what just happened to my debt. Moreover, let's say I'm a government. I'm sitting on $24 trillion of debt, but I'm in a deflationary super cycle. I'm now forced to pay the debt back with dollars that are worth more than the dollars that I borrowed. And that makes it almost impossible. So what do you say about the collision between deflation and the debt cycle that we're in? Well, that's exactly what is going to happen. And, and I think that what, it, like, you know, um, I, I've, got, I've, I've spent a lot of time playing poker. I play blackjack. I've, I've been uh, in Vegas a lot. And I remember one time I was playing blackjack and uh, the person beside me was clapping and the dealer said to him, you know, hope is not a strategy. Uh, and, uh, and I would say that, uh, you know, central bankers, um, you know, wanting inflation because they realize that this is happening also is not a strategy. This is why I think going back to UBI to close the loop is really quite an interesting idea in a moment like this, because I think what it has the ability to do is to get enough money into the hands of consumers that exceeds the nominal marginal value of that saved dollar. And that's when you will actually start to see more spending. And in that more spending, um, because you've gone through a few years, or in this case, decades now of deflation, um, demand can very quickly outstrip supply, and then you restart the inflationary cycle. And I think that that would be wonderful. Like, I mean, you know, we've all read, you know, Paul Tudor Jones's letter, Net By Now. Um, I think even central bankers would say, you know, the best way to sort of manage all these debts is through an inflationary cycle. Everybody wants it. I think the question is, how do you start it? Um, and I think that knowing that there's so much money supply there, the only way to sort of drive the velocity of money, in my opinion, is to get money in the hands of consumers and let them spend our way out of this, where the incremental saved dollar is not worth it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And so, so the, 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 the secondary question of this is you've got 
a lot of opinions on artificial intelligence and the ramping of artificial intelligence, which will also lower the cost of goods and services. 3D printing lowers the cost of goods and services. And so, uh, you know, at some point, don't you think, and I'll ask it rhetorically, but I'm interested to really get your reaction, the political landscape has to change. Right now, we're in a baby boomer political landscape where these guys, as David Rubenstein said on Monday, they won't leave the stage. You've got 75-plus-year-old people running for office, and they're killing each other in that sort of self-righteous way. So we're getting left strategies and right strategies opposed to right and wrong strategies. And so how do you intersect that line into the diagram that you and I are discussing? What do you think happens politically? I think politically, um, this is sort of the last gasp for boomers. And I think that in 2024, you're going to start to see a slate of young emerging alternatives on both sides. And what's interesting is I think like at some point between now and 2024, the alt-left and the alt-right will realize that political ideology is not a line, but it's a circle. And they'll meet somewhere and then all of a sudden realize, oh my gosh, we may be the exact same person. Uh, (laughs) So then everything will reflexively come back to a more neutral kind of positioning. So um, I think like, you know, the standard bearers of this new movement, the, the, the ones on the left are a little bit easier to identify than the ones on the right. Um, but I think that you're going to see a, a generally progressive shift to the left. Um, and that, you know, to be uh, a winning Republican candidate in eight to 10 years will mean you're sort of, you know, uh, a progressive social, dem- like a, a Democrat, some version of a Democrat or a free market Democrat. Um, that's, I think, going to happen for sure. And I, and I think that the, that, um, that horse has left the stable. Um, so we just have to sort of buy our time between now and then and minimize the damage. Um, you know, the one thing that you said, which is true, is that um, we have to keep a pace of all these technologies that are going to be increasingly deflationary by design. So, you know, one of the things that I think we also have to do is have to have a government regime that's willing to spend money. Now, the good news is, both the Democrats and the Republicans have torn this Band-Aid off of this kind of, you know, modern monetary theory approach of like, let's just spend, spend, spend. That's a, and print, print, print. And I think that that's reasonable if um, you direct that capital into really meaningful sinks that, um, that slow the deflationary super cycle down. So for example, on the one hand, where you're going to see the advent of AI that could theoretically reduce the earnings power of people, on the other side, I think we need to make it a national priority to fly to, the, uh, to, fly to Mars, um, not because we should, uh, but because we could. And you can, you, know, you can sink trillions and trillions of dollars of capital there. Um, you know, we may decide that we want hypersonic aircraft, not because we need it, but because we want it. And you can sink hundreds of billions of capital into that. And so th- there needs to be this... Um, reimagining of how the infrastructure of the world should look and should work and reimagining ourselves not just as a you know people that live on the earth but also in other planets and while it seems crazy the reason is because it can consume all of this capital in a way that's productive in a way that doesn't necessarily just create a downstream asset bubble because that has to deflate and then it will eventually reinflate and all of that destruction will further um segment society in ways that sort of make um, uh, political disruption more likely. And I think that we don't want that. 
or we shouldn't. Yeah, no, I, I get it. You don't you you don't want a society where people are going to take uh, tiki torches and pitchforks and march on the people that are holding the assets. So therefore, you've got to flatten it out. You've got to even out the K through 12 education system. And I think you and I are in a general agreement that uh, I don't I don't want equal outcomes, but I, I I do want people to have a broader likelihood of equal opportunity. Meaning, you know, if you grow up like me or the way you grew up. You know, my grandmother was a maid. She turned beds. My father was a crane operator. And so I got very lucky getting into a good public school, which yeah. allowed me to, you know, hone my academic skills. Uh, yeah. I just worry about that generation now. They, they have such an uneven educational footprint. Uh, you don't know if they can get to the arc of the American dream well, or you're, the Canadian you know, you're, To your point, like, uh, I, I completely agree with you. Like public education for me was my salvation. And then an, an amazing school in Canada that cost $10,000 a year. That was it. And, and, what, yeah. and what Canada and the rest of the world have refused to have happen is to allow, you know, higher education to become this luxury good that's like a, a, an LV, you know, bag, you know, of sorts, where you want to be seen carrying around this $5,000 purse. It's, it's kind of insane. And you know, in that bag, you carry the same garbage that you'd carry around in a $10 bag. And so what is the no, point? I, I get it. I tell, I tell people that all the time. You can, eat the, you can eat the pizza off of China or you can eat it off a plastic plate. We're both eating pizza. But, but I, I want to ask you about the consumer orientation to space exploration, which I find absolutely fascinating. And uh, I, I, I mentioned this to you. I, I, I've built a very nice relationship with Sir Richard Branson, he has been to the SALT conferences, and he, like you, is a great visionary. And so if you don't mind, could you spend a few minutes uh, on our, for our viewers of what the vision is for Virgin Galactic, where you see it in three or four years? But before you answer that question, I want to know my, uh, my friend Matt Goad, who runs Zero Gravity, have you been on the Vomit Comet? Have you ever uh, flown up there and done the Zero Gravity turns and twists, or not yet? I haven't. Um, I haven't done it. Um, but to, All right. Well, I'm going to take. If you're up for it, I'm going to take you up there as my guest. But tell us, tell us where the uh, future is for Virgin Galactic. Where, what do you see? Um, so I'll, I'll tell you the Virgin story, maybe in the context of the Apollo project, because I think it's important. So you know, when we sent people to the moon in 1969, that became this incredible sort of like thunderclap in the world, right? And it completely captured people's imagination. Um, so from, from just a, from a global sort of like hope perspective, it was an incredible, um, validation of human ingenuity and capability, but underneath Anthony, there was something that very practical happened, which was we invented an unbelievable number of industries. And the reason why space is such a compelling tip of the spear or a canary in a coal mine, whatever sort of, you know, phrase you want to use is that it stresses every single law of physics that we know and understand. And that's why space has captured the imagination of so many people. It requires you to think of all of the basic things that we have today in a completely different light, from computers to clocks, to materials, to how you manage heat. Um, all of these things that are understood today have to be completely reimagined. When you do that, the second and third order markets for these innovations are so vast. So for example, you may, you may care about climate change, 
Well, in order to really push climate change to the forefront, we are going to have to massively increase our battery density and the efficaciousness of our motors, electric motors. Well, underneath that is massive kinds of material science. Those innovations may never get funded um, in electrification. They will very likely get funded in space because you have to solve them to achieve these missions. And then it can trickle down to electrification as an example. Um, and so, you know, you have to think about space as a way of it being a guinea pig for many of the things that we can use to improve the landscape of the world, okay? So now you think about Virgin, what have they done? Well, what they've done is they've spent the last 15 years building a very safe, repeatable way of sending people into space and back. So into low earth orbit and back so that they can experience gravity, see Amazing. the edges of the earth's surface, right? Be up there, float around, and then come back down. Now, what are they building in order to do it? Um, they're building all kinds of really interesting materials. They're building uh, a very novel way of uh, managing the stability of a plane. Because remember, at the end of the day, this is not a rocket that goes up and down. This is a plane that takes off and lands. It could, yeah. it could literally take off and land from uh, LaGuardia or JFK. You don't need to go to Cape Canaveral, okay? So how do you design wings that behave in useful ways you know, at 350,000 feet as well as 50,000 feet? It's building engines that can, um, you know, with a reasonable carbon footprint, uh, generate enormous amounts of thrust and energy. How do you do that? So they figured all of these things out. So in phase one, 600 odd people have already signed up to fly, you know, $100 million of booked business that we have to deliver. 9,000 people have been waiting in line to give us a deposit. Um, another 500 or so people, I think, have given us a small deposit in order to make the bigger deposit. So there's, a, there's you know, tens of billions of dollars of revenue at very, very high margin um, to give people a once in a lifetime experience. But in doing it, our ambition, which we've talked about, is taking those technologies and building a plane that can fly hypersonically. So you would go to JFK or LaGuardia, you would get on a plane, it would fly Mach 5.5. So imagine you, you need to go to Japan, Tokyo. That would be a sub two hour flight. Amazing. You'd land in Tokyo, you'd do your meetings, you'd get back on the plane, you'd be back in LaGuardia, JFK, at home with your family for dinner, and you would have spent the entire day in Tokyo. Well, listen, it's amazing. And just for, for more context for our viewers, you know, in Douglas Brinkley's book, Moonshot, uh, the Apollo program, $25 billion, $1969, which is basically about $400 billion today. And they estimated, to your point, over a trillion and a half dollars of positive externalities. It, it wasn't just Tang and Post-it notes and aluminum foil. It was Everything you know, GPS, Everything. Uh, you know, uh, you know, all, all the systems, telecommunication mm -hmm. systems, the internet, the entire sort of uh, footprint, that grid, that information highway, the Apollo program in many ways paved the way for Facebook. You're, it's you're nice, completely right. It's nice you're to see that you've right. you've tied those two things back together. My my colleague John Darcy has a question. He's sitting out there with all the dead animals on the wall that he's hiding from everybody at the ranch in Colorado. Go ahead, John. Tamath, you did a, a fascinating podcast a couple years ago with Kara Swisher, and you've had a lot of interesting conversations with her. And you talked a lot about Silicon Valley and about how the culture is broken and the system of capital formation is broken. 
would love for you to talk a little bit about you know, your, your explanation of that theory, as well as how you think the pandemic might even uh, exacerbate that uh, shift that we're seeing out of Silicon Valley or some of the disillusionment that people in the tech industry are seeing with Silicon Valley. So I think that there's a dispersion happening and that dispersion is not dissimilar to what's happening in the public markets. If I had to characterize the public market dispersion, it's essentially that we are separating the haves and the have nots and the haves are companies that traffic in bits. So, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, above all others, but then underneath them, you know, uh, largely founder led technology businesses. Okay. That have the 80 to 90% gross margins even if they're unprofitable. So those are the haves, they traffic in bits. The have-nots are the companies that traffic in atoms. You know, if you're a hotel company, an airline, an auto business, um, those businesses are uh, incredibly impaired. And there's been a dispersion and a spread um, uh, where you could basically, essentially, if you, if you bought the, the weighted S&P index, which essentially is a way of getting synthetically long these handful of tech businesses, and shorted the unweighted index, which is, you know, basically getting uh, an equal weighting of everything else, you can see this massive dispersion and spread effect. That's happening in private markets as well, except what we're looking at are companies that either are benefiting from the pandemic, so tailwinds um, that are driving positive growth and profitability, so companies like you know, Coinbase uh, or uh, Instacart um, or uh, you know, Palo Alto Networks, which is public, or Netscope, which is private, you know, internet security businesses or Slack, we don't, which is a collaboration business. So there, there are these companies, a mixture of private and public. And then businesses that were second and third tier also rands are again, just getting crushed. Um, and they're, they're being forced to fire and lay people off. Underneath that dynamic is something that's been broken in the Valley for a while, which is that the cycle of building and profiting from companies has taken too long. It used to be the case that we would build a company for four to six years and then take it public and then the public markets would participate in the last two or three years of evolving the business. Now what happens is there's so much private money that these companies stagnate in the private markets for eight, nine, and 10 years. The problem is that for LPs, it doesn't work because you have these 10-year fund lives. And you know, if you're a growth fund, maybe a seven-year fund life with a couple one-year renewals, the timing mismatch now that it's creating is this massive overhang where you have these you know, paper values and IRRs that can't be monetized. And so that's feeding a cycle where even faster than normal, LPs are looking at secondary firms and saying, let me sell some of these things. Let me rebalance my portfolio because my publics are getting crushed. My, you know, if you look at private equity, it's very challenged because they predominantly traffic in atoms. You know, they're buying industrials companies. They're buying things that are real tangible things that you buy with, you know, current free cash flow. That stuff is very, very challenged. Um, and so as a result, the IRR is that, that, that these pension funds and other LPs will see are going to be challenged. They then look at their venture exposure and say, wow, I have way too much exposure. And so then they're selling. Then the venture funds themselves are thinking to themselves, wow, I'm having a lot of trouble raising a new fund. So it's a very complicated cycle, John, but uh, that's what we're engaged in right now is, uh, is this uh, essentially uh, a massive multi-year long portfolio rebalancing. And, you know, the publics are leading the way. So that dispersion is creating uh, a dislocation. Private equity is the next uh, domino to fall because when they really reset their portfolios and revalue them, you know, two, three, four quarters now into the full scale breadth of the consumer um, demand shock that we're dealing with. 
and then venture folks will have to take the the back seat but uh it's going to make valuations very challenging in the public markets and you, and you're going to be rewarded for having money to put you, to work you know chamath when you think about the future it's 15 years from today we have all of this complexity what you're basically describing is another big transition it's a little bit like the industrial revolution back in the 1830s where all of a sudden people got scared they were losing their jobs and then there was massive productivity up up uplink if you will and so i guess what i'm asking is you and i know there's going to be an abundance we know that there's going to be nanotechnology biotechnology immunotherapy there's going to be an abundance and i know you're worried about this because i listened to your interviews you're worried that that's going to go to two or three percent of the people and we're going to live in this sort of ether of plutocrats where the rest of the society is struggling and so you're a capitalist obviously i'm a capitalist and so how do we shatter the totems of political ideology to explain that to people so that they understand that if you give somebody some universal income or some base education that's actually right in the western canon of liberalism that's the way to allow them to experience their life to their true form the way you were going to that ten thousand dollar school or i've been able to so how do we how do we shatter those totems how do we get there yeah i think that the 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 way that i look at it is that right now we have very uneven starting lines and um we can use money and we can use incentives to make sure that as much as possible and as often as possible, we have a very even starting line. And I think universal basic income um, is a very interesting tool to make sure that the uneven starting lines of today are not meaningfully exacerbated. Because the reality is looking today, you know, middle of May, 2020, um, people that are relatively wealthy and had asset exposure uh, I don't think are very much feeling anything from this pandemic. Um, but people who had, you know, normal kind of blue collar jobs um, have been affected meaningfully, you know, 30 odd million, we're trending to 30 odd million people. Um, and that's enormous. That's like kind of like saying, if you walk outside the United States, you know, every fifth working man or woman that you see it doesn't have a job. That's in my mind, extremely scary. So the way that you destroy these totems, at least from my perspective, is right now when we're in a crisis, it's the equivalent of being, you know, gurneyed into the ER with a gunshot wound. You have to stop the bleeding. So tourniquet yourself and make sure that we can stabilize the patient. And I think money in the hands of people do that. Then it's about being able to successfully conduct the surgery and remove the gunshot wound. And I think how you do that is to make sure that the companies themselves who are employing you um, have some reasonably good behaviors coming out of this crisis, better than the incentives they had coming into the crisis. And then the way you rehabilitate, so even after the gunshot wound, how do you get back to 90 or 100% physical capability, is that you have to go after some of these huge, big elephants that have been hanging around for a while. Number one at the top, 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 I think, Anthony is education. We have to figure out what to do on the student loan sign side and what to do about the quality of public school education and the compensation we pay teachers. It's kind of a joke. I mean, I have four kids, three of them are in school age, and 
I have to be honest with you, it is impossible for me to do a good job. And I think that those teachers uh, should be paid 10 times more than they are. But then at the same time, I'm a little angry at them because I think between them and the administration, the administrators of, my, of our schools, they're so woefully unequipped. And I think this is 2020. And then my school is in the heart of Silicon Valley. How is this possible? So right. I think that there's a lot of stuff that you can do to make sure that the best teachers are teaching all the kids. And that's right. a technological problem. Well, that's that Sal situation. You know, we're going to have Sal, uh, uh, Sal Kahan on uh, later on. And that Sal has always preached that to me. It's like we're trying to make a, a movie instead of getting George Lucas and Steve Spielberg together to make the movie, we're getting the local uh, drama club to make the movie. And we have to figure out a way to push that expertise down and make it more broad. I, I know we're running out of time, but I'm, I, I'm very curious about this question. And I sort of hope you don't mind me an answering it because it's a, you know, it's a question about our polarity and politicization. And there's a, there was a New Yorker cartoon that I read about two weeks ago and I literally laughed out loud. It was a news anchor. and He was sitting at a news desk and he said, we just heard from our Democratic weather person. Now let's get the news, the weather from our Republican weather person. And the, the, the point being that, uh, you know, we're, we're so politicized. And so, you know, do you think Facebook uh, is doing a good job? Do you think we can do a good job? Is there a way to dial down some of the misinformation out there and dial up more of the objectivity because I think one of our biggest problems, Chamath, is we can't even agree on the facts anymore. Depending on where I'm watching or what channel I'm on, I'm getting a different set of facts than the guy next to me. And so we're, we're, we're arguing over the facts now. Do you think we can do anything to change that? Um, I think that, um, so it, there's a there's a there's a great philosopher. His name is Rene Girard, and uh, he 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 follows it. He he pioneered the school of thought, which essentially says that, you know, people um, aren't really born with desires. They they mimic and model desires from other people, and then um, you know they they copy and they imitate, um, and then eventually though they imitate too much, and it leads to conflict, and then you have to scapegoat somebody. And there needs to be a grand sacrifice before you can reset and everything will be fine again. Um, right now, we're in a cycle where um, it is very easy to confuse truth and popularity. And so people can do it because um, it appeases their mind. Um, it makes it easier for them to be part of a tribe and take something as fact versus have to be in the uncomfortable process of re-underwriting everything they hear. Um, and Facebook in many ways is in an impossible situation because they have to do a dance between what is really fact and what is a person's opinion and, you know, how do you, you know, allow free speech. And so I don't even think it's their problem. I think it's the, it's, it's a decision that we as a society um, have chosen to undergo. So I think it will come to a head in the next four or five years. And I think that, um, how it gets resolved, Anthony, like what is the scapegoating that happens? Um, I think that probably there needs to be something like a, like a, like a new deal. Um, and I don't want to say mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the green new deal, but I think it's a, it's a complete reevaluation and rewrite of the compact we have as, as, as US citizens. And, uh, and I think that that's coming. And, you know, I, I don't think that that's necessarily 100% of the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders, um, but I also think it's not 100% of the rhetoric of Donald Trump. 
Um, oh, and I it's going to be a total rewrite. And this is why I think that, um, you know, the United States in many ways is like a startup that's never failed because like we always iterate and we'll recreate ourselves. Right. Um, and so I have a lot of trust and faith that eventually people will emerge on both sides mm-hmm. and uh, they'll just say, all right, screw the past. I'm tired of our parents bickering. Let's just sit down and shake hands and figure it out. Uh, well, listen, I mean, but, you know, generationally, if you really study cycles of generations, you know, you're now in the 80th year of the start of World War II. And so when you sit there and look at that, it's a lifetime ago. What starts to happen is this, another cycle starts. There was a, a book in 1996 called The Fourth Turning, yeah. which was an explanation of these cycles. And so sure. we're there now, and it's going to require really good re- leadership to set that framing. Just one other point on that. I, I find this fascinating as well. 27 constitutional amendments. The last one was a procedural one in 1993, but the most, the biggest one, the most magnitude in terms of the body politic was the civil rights amendment in 65. So we've really gone, think about the country. It's 244 years old. We've gone 55 years without a real constitutional amendment to sort of reset things and to regraph things directionally. So I, I agree with that. I know we're running out of time, but I, I'd like you to end on a note, if you don't mind, because I think you're an, you're an amazing person in terms of being able to see around the corner of where we're heading. It's five to 10 years out. Build me the case for America. And where would you like to see America? Yeah, I think in, in, uh, in 10 years from now, I think what will have happened, I'm just going to paint my kind of like rose-colored glasses view. Um, we will have come out of the deflationary cycle. We will have seen some, you know, modest, reasonably good inflation. Um, and we will have reinvigorated the U.S. economy. We will have become um, a standard bearer for basically um, Western Europe, South America, and parts of Africa. I think that the two superpowers that exist will be us and China. And it will be one where it's sort of mutually assured destruction. And so we choose to cooperate wherever possible and power share. Um, That there will be a lot of high earning jobs because we will nationalize things that should be nationalized for national security purposes. Um, And that we uh, have reinvented education almost back as sort of a very much one-to-many model to your point that isn't cut across county or state lines anymore, but says, you know, the best teachers teach the entire nation in a completely different way. Um, and we, we have a, a body politic that, um, that is meeting in the middle and is much more like the 1980s Republicans versus Democrats versus the 2020s Republicans and Democrats. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. Um, but we are going to go through three or four years of difficult um, treading to get there. Um, and so we're in the middle of the grind. So this is not where things get easy. But by 2024, things will get much clearer. Well, listen, we appreciate your uh, time today. You've been uh, amazing. I'm, I'm not a room raider, but I love your room. I love the sunlight coming in. You're doing <laughs> fantastic. I've got the, the old-fashioned TV screen. Uh, but uh, I hope you'll take me up on the vomit comet. That's what the astronauts used to call that thing. Uh, my friend Matt Goad runs uh, Zero Gravity, and I uh, would love to go up there with you. I think you'd find it fascinating because you get to a certain level, they move the plane in a certain way, you're up in the air, and you can experience some of that space flight that you're, uh, you're, I would love you to. yourself are looking forward to. 
I would love to. Well, God bless you. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Uh, That's it for uh, Salt Talks uh, this week. Have a great weekend, everybody. And Chamath, I'll be in touch. I really look forward to our our next event together. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, John. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. All right. Bye.